Welcome back to the One Investment Away podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Chaddock, and today we are doing our part two of our partnership letter. Let's dive right in. So following the footsteps of Nick and Zach's excellent adventure, if you haven't already read William Green's amazing book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, at least a few times, then you may not have heard of the investors and their philosophy that our 100x goal is actually derived from. So our admittedly audacious goal with this portfolio stemmed from four main sources. So the first is the person who sent us down this long and winding road, which is Manish Prabhai. So Manish is one of my personal all-time favorite investors, author of one of my all-time favorite investing books, The Dondo Investor, and the founder and CEO of the extremely successful investment fund sharing the same name, Dondo Funds. So Prabhai sent me down this particular transformative rabbit hole That is the Nomad Partnership and also helped me dig up and dust off the philosophy and practice in the book 100 to 1 in the Stock Market by an author named Thomas Phelps. And from there, I also studied the updated and modernized successor to this book, 100 Beggars by Chris Mayer, which is another excellent read. So just like with all great investors, there always seems to be this tipping point that occurs both in their investing philosophy and in the results that correspond to this. So from Buffett to Sleep to Pabri, none of them seem to be immune to this evolution. And this change appears to happen in two major ways. So both of which cannot exist or at least don't work properly without the other. And these two major changes are, one, buying great businesses at good or if you're lucky, great prices, instead of just buying businesses that are on sale, no matter how deeply, and hopefully selling them back to the market for fair value prices. And then number two, is actually holding on forever, and sometimes read as for dear life. And I see this as being the difference between a farmer and a hunter. So once we find a great idea, we don't approach it with the intent to kill that idea, but to cultivate it. And maybe we'll talk about this metaphor more deeply in a different letter. So that first directional shift away from pure value to buying future greatness almost automatically changes your holding period from I'll sell as soon as the market prices this stock at fair value to I hope I never have to sell this thing. So after all, if you own a great business, it's going to keep growing at a much faster rate and for a much longer period of time. So why would you want to sell all that magic that is taking place? So Munger would say to never interrupt compounding unnecessarily. After all, that last double is by far the most important in any investment. And in fact, it makes up the same amount of return as all the doubles that came before it, no matter how many doubles that may have been. So the investment odyssey that we now find ourselves on was inspired by Sleep's and Zachariah's Nomad Partnership. Here's an excerpt from my personal favorite investing book, William Green's Richer, Wiser, Happier. So Sleep and Zachariah had no interest in building a colossal fund that would shower them with fees. They didn't fantasize about appearing as market gurus on CNBC or being fetishized. On the cover of Forbes, they had no desire to buy themselves castles, airplanes, or yachts, and their ambitions was simple. They wanted to generate superb long-term returns. Specifically, their target was a tenfold increase in Nomad's net asset value. So Sleep, who has three daughters and a godson, framed this mission in a somewhat whimsical terms. If they asked him, what did you do during the war? He wanted to reply, we turned one pound into 10 pounds. So we are a little bit different in this regard. 
For us, we are not turning $1 into 10. We are intending to walk further down this path. After all, we are planning to do this for a much longer period than the 13 years Nick and Zach did. By the way, they achieved their goal before fees, turning every dollar invested into $10.21. So this is an annualized rate of 20.8% compared to the 6.5% return per year that the MSCI World Index manage. From that compounding chart we talked about earlier, we can say that with some confidence that if they were to continue to invest at this similar rate of return, they would have turned every dollar into that $100 if they just stayed in business for another 12 years. So what if we bought the whole thing? One of the most important shifts I think we can make as investors is shifting our mindset from trying to buy shares of a stock to buying ownership in an actual business. So in other words, we didn't buy Spotify shares at $73.30 with the hopes of selling them for more. We bought Spotify, all of its employees, its CEO, its users, and all of its future potential, all of it, for a purchase price of $15 billion. The question for us as investors should always be, is this actually a good price for this business? So for Spotify, we think it was a great price, and the reasoning is actually quite simple, or at least the reasoning I used to come to this conclusion is simple. So here's how it went. If I actually had $15 billion lying around, where did I put that again? Is it under this pillow? No, hmm, maybe under the mattress? Huh, not there either. Well, there it is, of course, under the dog bed. I would never need to be very certain that I wasn't going to lose money on this business. After all, there are only so many dog beds in our house, which I think is three right now. For me, I looked at how many paying subscribers there were, the churn rate, the potential future growth rate on that subscriber base, both on the free and the premium side, and asked myself an extremely simplified question. At today's price, the market is offering all of Spotify for $15 billion. What am I actually getting for this $15 billion? At that time, Spotify was generating around $10 billion in annual revenue, with about $300-ish million in free cash flow and a gross profit margin of around 26%, or $2.6 billion on that $10 billion. That's all fine and good, but I actually simplified it even further. So would I be happy to pay $15 billion for 200 million people who appear to love the service and are extremely likely to continue paying for the service even if that number never increased? What if I narrow this focus to only the paying subscribers for Spotify? So I asked the question another way. At today's price, how much am I paying for every user who currently pays for Spotify? At that time, Spotify had a total market cap of around $15 billion. They also had roughly $1.2 billion in long-term debt in the form of a 0% exchangeable senior note, which is due in 2026, by the way, and roughly $2.4 billion in cash on their balance sheet. So when we bought the entire company, we really paid $14 billion, or $13.8 billion, if you're getting specific. Divide that $14 billion purchase price by the roughly 200 million users, and we find our answer. So $14 billion divided by $200 million equals $70. So in other words, if I bought today, I would be paying $70 for each and every user who's currently paying to use Spotify. But is that a good price? Well, I knew personally I was paying $13 a month or $156 a year as a premium user of Spotify. So I could essentially buy me for less than half that. Of course, the price users pay is different and there's a large mix from high to low across different regions around the world and different price points. But remember, $156 is just what I was paying for a single year and almost what I had been paying since 2013 or just shy of 10 years now. So again, does $70 per user 
seem like a good deal here? The answer to me seemed like an obvious yes. So here's why. Let's say after I bought Spotify, I was only ever able to get the average user to pay just $6 a month. And we assume that none of the other verticals that Spotify is going into actually helps increase that annual rate or increase the profit margin on that annual run rate. So that $6 per month per user would net $72 per year. At $72 multiplied by the current roughly 200 million subscribers at the end of 2022, that would generate a very sticky, very predictable, very repeatable $14.4 billion in revenue each and every year that I own this business. And if I was going to keep owning this business, which as our philosophy states that we buy a business and then act as if we are now one of the founders of that business, owning with the intention of never having to sell, what about after five years? Well, our newly purchased business would generate a total of $72 billion in cumulative revenue over that first five-year time frame and roughly $18.7 billion in gross profit. And that is without any growth on that user base, the annual revenue per user or the margin profile, which as you know, have all grown at a compounded rate of 26% per year since 2015. So what if the company was only able to grow the subscriber base at 15% a year? Well, using our favorite rule, the rule of 72, that would mean that the paid users would double every roughly five years or 4.8 years, but five is just easier for math. So we're going to stick with that. So in 10 years, we could see the users double twice from 200 to 400 and from 400 to 800 million paid subs. So during that time, without adding any price increases to our average over the 10 year period, those users would now generate $57.6 billion. That year alone, if nothing else changed on the gross profit side, and it stayed at 26%, on the 10th year, the company would generate 14.9 billion in gross profit, matching our original purchase price. I know one of the golden rules is thou shalt not use Excel, However, some of us are mere mortals and don't have computers or brains, so it can be a bit easier to see all this data laid out in front of us. And as made up as the future we predict always is, it can still be a fun exercise, no matter how paradoxical putting those two words together may at first appear to be. So you can see here in this chart, if you're watching the video, is that in 2023, the users in premium subs should rise to 230 million. And we'll see at the end of January here if this comes to be true. And we kept the annual run rate per user, or the ARPU, it's called, hilariously, at $72. The revenue, if we use that $72, which is not quite there yet, it would be a run rate of $16 billion, and gross profit would be $4.3 billion. And then in 2030, we'd have 612 premium subscribers, and we kept the run rate the same. Revenue would be $44 billion, and our gross profit would be $11 billion. So in 2032, which is 10 years from the purchase date, we would have 809 million paying subscribers. And we just kept their ARPU or their annual revenue per user at $72. That would generate 58 billion in revenue. And the gross profit would be 15 billion that year. And this would mean if we own the entire business, which is the approach that we take, that our cumulative revenue from the time of purchase from 2022 would be 336 billion. And the cumulative total profit on gross profit, that is, would be 87 billion. So you can see why we thought this was a potentially great investment at that purchase price of just under $15 billion or $14 billion. So our elusive mentors, Nick and Zach, would call this the destination analysis. And it's a concept we'll revisit in the future. It's a concept of attempting to understand exactly where the business we're investing in or looking to invest in is likely to end up and how it can actually get there. So the better we are at performing this type of analysis, 
And of course, the accuracy of that analysis will directly result in, well, our results. So we can divide our destination analysis into three large buckets. So we have the past, where they've been, the present, to get a clear picture of where we currently are. And then we attempt to use all of the data from the past and what the company currently is today and the growth that it took to get to that present to determine the future or the destination, if you want to think of it that way. So we do a deep analysis of the past so we can better understand how the company came to be to its present today. And that past bucket is full of all the failed ideas, outgrown concepts, and parts and pieces that are no longer relevant to the business that is Spotify today. And that present bucket has many of the pieces from the past that survived into today and is creating new pieces as it builds towards that future. And we use everything we know about what the company was in the past, how it got to where it is today, and everything it's building towards for its future, all for the purpose of attempting to figure out in the case of this mixed metaphor, where this business is likely to end up or what's likely to be in its future bucket when it actually gets there. So it's asking the question, if this company continues down this same path and progresses at a similar rate forward down this path, where will this company be, let's say 10 years from now? And what will that company look like? Of course, we're actually looking quite a bit further out than just 10 years, but this 10-year mark will be a major milestone for this company specifically, so it's an important one for us to have. So here's what we know about Spotify's present, or at least the past that has created this present. So Spotify is the clear market leader in music. They are the clear market leader in podcasts. They are the clear market leader in user engagement. They have the lowest churn rate. They are trading at the lowest sales multiple. They have the most room to grow at a $15 billion market cap versus one to two trillion or three trillion now for the other businesses that are competing against Spotify. And Spotify is the only audio focused platform at scale. So the truth is our estimation above is likely an overestimation in the subscriber user growth and an underestimation in the total revenue that Spotify will be able to generate 10 years from now. So our CEO, Daniel Eck, and the rest of Spotify's big, hairy, audacious goal is to have 1 billion users and to generate 100 billion in total revenue by the year 2030. And you can see from the chart above, we only have 44 billion in our total revenue for that 2030 date. A simple extrapolation of price on this dollar amount, if we go back to the average that Spotify has sold on the market for in the past, if you remember that psychological pricing we talked about with regards to the price to sales, Spotify sold at a price to sales multiple of four. So if the company is making $100 billion in sales by 2030 or sometime later, this would give us a $400 billion market cap because it's just the market cap times four. So compare that to our $15 billion purchase price and things look pretty interesting. So even if they only achieved an extremely modest price to sales multiple of one times, that would put our company at the $100 billion market cap, still well above our $15 billion market cap purchase price. So we believe the company will eventually achieve this level, whether they do so in 10 years or 15. Well, that only affects our yearly return, not our actual end goal. So that destination we're looking at, by the way, just to set the goalpost for you, to get that 100x return for Spotify in this specific investment would be a $1.5 trillion Spotify business. So in the future, we'll be talking about how they could actually get here. And it's pretty interesting to go through this, but I can't give it all away today, can I? So the reason behind our numbers looking so much smaller than Spotify's gauntlet throwing ones 
is because we only pulled one of those levers that Spotify has to actually grow their revenue. So the total users, right? That's the only lever we pulled. So what we didn't do was adjust how much each of those users is worth. A metric hilariously known as ARPU, average revenue per user, and the addition of more profitable business verticals that Spotify has moved into, such as audiobooks. So this audacious goal may not happen, of course, but we paid a good enough price that it doesn't have to. And that's the point. We don't need them to hit some arbitrary number. We just need them to keep growing by adding more users to their service, delighting their customers, and serving their clients in the best way possible. So far, so good. So now let's move on to the simplified Spotify investment thesis. Our intention with every investment is to find the driving force and fuel behind what we believe to be a perpetual motion machine that we are investing in. And it must have both the momentum and a large enough future potential to pull us to that 100x destination we have set forth. And we like to call this the North Star Narrative, or NSN for short. So it's our guiding light for what the investment thesis is for the business. So if the company strays too far off course from this North Star that we set, we know we'll have to seriously consider selling. So you can think of the North Star narrative is the reason that we bought this company distilled into a single sentence. So in Lord of the Rings terminology, it would be said as the one sentence to rule them all. And it is a burden we all must carry, not just our hairy-footed Frodo friend, as we continuously and unfailingly march towards that distance 100x future. So this is a living narrative, and you'll find that it evolves not only as the company does, but as we do as investors. So for now, Spotify's North Star narrative is the perpetual motion machine they have created and continue to build. It's the momentum of their flywheel that with each push gets faster and faster. And it can be summarized like this. So they get more free subscribers, which leads to more creators, authors, artists, and podcasters now, which lead to the best user experience. So those free users will convert to paid and it gives them much more revenue opportunities and a higher lifetime value. So this is the most basic version of the Spotify machine and it will need to be a very well-oiled one in order for us to achieve that 10 to 100x return that we're looking for, right? We can really zoom in on each component of this machine and break it down to its smaller parts. So the key going forward will be keeping track of each part of the machine. If we start seeing pieces falling apart, the whole machine can break. And when our North Star narrative no longer exists, we must act accordingly. Or when the facts change, we change our mind. You can kind of look at it like this. So free and paid subscribers attracts the best and the most creators, which leads to more time spent on Spotify for the users and more data to make the best, most personalized user experience for Spotify. And that leads to higher retention and conversion on their revenue creating ideas. And this leads to a higher lifetime value, which leads to more free and paid subscribers because they have the best user experience. This is what the North Star narrative sounds like distilled down to a single sentence. So Spotify will attract the most subscribers, which will continue to attract the most and best creators, which builds the best, most deeply personalized user experience, which will attract even more subscribers, creating an extremely powerful perpetual motion machine that will lead to 1 billion plus users and 100 billion in revenue. Okay, let's talk about a quick update on the numbers for Spotify. Because since beginning my research into Spotify back in November of 2022, a lot has changed with the business. And at that time, Spotify had 456 million monthly active users or MAUs, of which 195 million of those were paying subscribers. Of those paying Spotify, only 3.4% leave the service. So this is that churn rate that we talked about. 
And it's a very important number to keep a close eye on. It's one we will be keeping a close eye on as years go on. And in the most developed markets, which Spotify is in more than 180 total markets, this churn rate can go lower than 2%. So that means in the most developed market that Spotify has been in for the longest, only sub 2% of users leave the service every month, which is very good. So in fact, since that time, which puts us roughly at Q3 2022 to Q3 2023, Spotify has grown by a substantial amount, growing its monthly active users or MAUs from 456 million to 574 million and expecting to pass 600 million users by the end of 2023, which we'll find out at the end of January, by the way. In other words, in just one year, Spotify added over 100 million users to the top of the funnel. So the paid subscribers, which is where Spotify still gets the vast majority of its revenue, grew from 195 million subs to 226 million paid subs, adding a total of 31 million paying subscribers. So there are two ways I like to think about this. When we bought Spotify, we only paid to acquire 195 million subscribers and 456 million users. And now, just one year later, we have 226 million people paying us and a total of 574 million people using and enjoying the service every single month. If they are able to keep growing at this pace, which honestly seems possible given the past, but unlikely given the size of the business, it's kind of like the law of large numbers, that would mean that this number would double in the next three years. Or in other words, they would hit their 1 billion user target in 2027, not 2030. And a reminder, this is if they continue to grow at their historic growth rate of 26% per year, which you now know means the underlying number doubles every three years at that growth rate, thanks to the rule of 72. The more conservative view, well, let's stick with that 600 million subscriber number and just say that they need to hit that target of 1 billion by 2030 in order to achieve their internal big, hairy, audacious goal. So we can work backwards from that target of 1 billion and figure out what growth rate they would need to achieve in order to get there. We've just crossed into 2024. So that's one double in six years. If we want to reverse engineer our growth rate, we just divide 72 by six. So this tells us in order to get a double in six years, we would need roughly a 12% compounded annual growth rate. That amount of growth feels much more achievable, doesn't it, than that 26%. But all they need to do is grow their users by 12% a year to achieve their goal of 1 billion users. So if we double reverse engineer and say that that ratio of 235 million paid subscribers to 600 million total users remains relatively unchanged, so that ratio at 35%, right, that 235 million people paying of the 600 million users using the service is a 35% ratio. So this number is hovering around 40% today, but we can just use that 35% to keep it a little more conservative. So we can just multiply this 35% onto our $1 billion outcome or 1.2 if we use our above double example, and we'll get a subscriber base of 350 million, a much more conservative number than our above example. So the next question would be, how does Spotify turn those 1 billion users and 350 million subscribers into 1 billion in revenue? Another good question indeed. Well, I will only leave you partially hanging on this one. Spotify says they will somehow generate an annual revenue per user on every user, not just the premium, of $100. So $100 per user per year times 1 billion users equals 100 billion in revenue. So the math checks out, but that does not make it easy for Spotify to accomplish. At our 1.2 billion users, if we use that 12% for 10 years instead, 
it's a bit easier at $84 per user, or 83.3333 repeated, in average revenue per user, but still not easy. The how and the if of this outcome, we'll just have to wait and see. Now let's move on to the next part. In 2023, Spotify cut 23% of their workforce and their CFO. So lately appears to me that Spotify has been making the shift away from growth at any cost to profitability and efficiency by any cuts. In this case, in 2023, they decided to cut right around 2,300 total employees. Spotify and their current CFO, Paul Vogel, who's going to be departing the business, were investing aggressively for growth and were using the low interest rate environment and the economic landscape to justify these aggressive hirings. So Daniel X said that times have changed and they need to adapt as a business. To put this aggressive hiring growth into some sort of perspective, they had grown their team from 3,600 employees in 2020 to around 10,000 employees in 2023 before the cuts. So the average salary for Spotify is somewhere around that $100,000 level. The funny thing about cuts is that they actually begin with an extra cost to the business as all the employees are paid severance, healthcare, etc. And without the benefit of those 2,300 employees working for and on the business at that time. Short-term pain for long-term gain is the name of the game. So the estimated cost savings should be around $230 million per year if we multiply 2,300 employees by that $100,000 salary level. So my guess is that these are strategic cuts and that the company is likely still going to be hiring as we progress into 2024. So I wouldn't take this loss as a permanent financial gain, but I believe they will be much more strategic in their hiring moving forward. And I'm going to share Daniel X's memo on the most recent decision to cut another 1,500 employees at the end of 2023 after already having two prior rounds of reductions of 600 and 200 employees. And I think it not only gives insight into how our CEO thinks for this business, but where the company is likely headed in the future and the reasoning behind both of these actions. So here's the memo. He says, team, over the last two years, we put significant emphasis on building Spotify into a truly great and sustainable business. One designed to achieve our goal of being the world's leading audio company and one that will consistently drive profitability and growth into the future. While we've made worthy strides, as I've shared many times, we still have work to do. Economic growth has slowed dramatically and capital has become more expensive. Spotify is not an exception to these realities. This brings me to a decision that will mean a significant step change for our company. To align Spotify with our future goals and to ensure we are right-sized for the challenges ahead, I've made the difficult decision to reduce our total headcount by approximately 17% across the company. I recognize this will impact a number of individuals who have made valuable contributions. To be blunt, many smart, talented, and hardworking people will be departing us. For those leaving, we're a better company because of your dedication and hard work. Thank you for sharing your talents with us. I hope you know that your contributions have impacted more than half a billion people and millions of artists and creators and authors around the world in profound ways. I realize that for many, a reduction of this size will feel surprisingly large given the recent positive earnings report and our performance. We debated making smaller reductions throughout 2024 and 25 Yet considering the gap between our financial goal state and our current operational costs, I decided that a substantial action to right-size our costs was the best option to accomplish our objectives. While I am convinced that this is the right action for our company, 
I also understand that it will be incredibly painful for our team. To understand this decision, I think it's important to assess Spotify with a clear, objective lens. In 2020 and in 2021, we took advantage of the opportunity presented by lower-cost capital and invested significantly in team expansion, content enhancement, marketing, and new verticals. These investments generally worked, contributing to Spotify's increased output and the platform's robust growth this past year. However, we now find ourselves in a very different environment. And despite our efforts to reduce costs this past year, our cost structure for where we need to be is still too big. When we look back on 2022 and 2023, it has truly been impressive what we have accomplished. But at the same time, the reality is much of this output was linked to having more resources. By most metrics, we were more productive, but less efficient. We need to be both. While we have done some of the work to mitigate this challenge and become more efficient in 2023, we still have a ways to go before we are both productive and efficient. Today, we still have too many people dedicated to supporting work and even doing work around work rather than contributing to opportunities with real impact. More people need to be focused on delivering for our key stakeholders, creators and consumers. In two words, we have to become relentlessly resourceful. So for the team that will remain at Spotify, I know this decision will be difficult for many. Please know we are focused on treating our impacted colleagues with the respect and compassion they deserve. And he goes into looking ahead. So the decision to reduce our team size is a hard but crucial step towards forging a stronger, more efficient Spotify for the future. But it also highlights that we need to change how we work. In Spotify's early days, our success was hard won. We had limited resources and had to make the most of every asset. Our ingenuity and creativity were what set us apart. As we've grown, we move too far away from this core principle of resourcefulness. The Spotify of tomorrow must be defined by being relentlessly resourceful in the ways we operate, innovate, and tackle problems. This kind of resourcefulness transcends the basic definition. It's about preparing for our next phase, where being lean is not just an option, but a necessity. Embracing this leaner structure will also allow us to invest our profits more strategically back into the business. With a more targeted approach, every investment and initiative becomes more impactful, offering greater opportunities for success. This is not a step back, it's a strategic reorientation. So we're still committed to investing and making bold bets, but now with a more focused approach, ensuring Spotify's continued profitability and ability to innovate. Lean doesn't mean small ambitions. It means smarter, more impactful paths to achieve them. Today is a difficult but important day for the company. To be very clear, my commitment to our mission and belief in our ability to achieve has never been stronger. I hope you will join me on Wednesday for Unplugged to discuss how we move forward together. A reduction of this size will make it necessary to change the way we work, and we will share much more about what this will mean in the days and weeks ahead. Just as 2023 marked a new chapter for us, so will 2024 as we build an even stronger Spotify. Daniel. And he sent that off December 3rd, I believe. Okay, and now let's move on to the thing about value. So value investing. Me even saying those words probably evoked something in you, right? Maybe a definition or a picture or even a feeling of what exactly that means. You may have pictured our dear friend Warren Buffett and the now famous metaphor of buying a $10 bill but only paying $5.
or maybe you even went all the way back to the traditional definition and the days of Ben Graham and David Dodd, buying something at a discount to the tangible book value. Or maybe you're like me and took it one step further and not only thought of a discounted business that Graham always talked about, but his famous concept of the cigar butt, with just enough left on the end for one more, admittedly soggy, puff. And this one certainly has the most flavorful profile. You can almost taste it. The funny part is, all of these are value investing, and at the same time, none of them are. In other words, they are part of what it means, but not the whole thing. It's like trying to only describe what honey tastes like to someone who's never actually tried it. It's really impossible until you've tasted it for yourself. It's much easier to define what it isn't rather than what it really is. Value investing, for me, at least to attempt to define it, can be stated in this simple way. So it's buying something for less than it's worth. Simple and yet not easy, as the late and great Mr. Munger would say. However, if you are able to buy something for less than it's worth, then that is, at least to me, a value investment. Plain and simple. You're paying for something that's worth more than what you are paying today. Of course, you can add things like knowledge, time, degrees of value, underlying growth, and a massive list of criteria for what makes it valuable. But at the heart of the matter, it's simply buying something for less than it should be selling for. And you can think of it like the perspective of this picture that I have here. If you're not following along, then there's two hands holding dirt with a small seedling sticking out of the dirt. And in the background, there's a massive tree. So what we want to do is we want to buy a company when it's just that seedling and selling for the price of that seedling when we know that what we're actually paying for is that massive tree that's bearing fruit in the future. So that is what we do, and that is the heart of value. But like most important truths, there's a hidden depth within its simplicity. To know what anything is worth, you have to first understand it. What does it mean to understand a business? How much do you need to understand in order to actually have an opinion on what something is worth? How can you be sure? How long into the future are you looking? It always makes me think of this famous story of this architect who set out to build the perfect building. For years, they struggled to even find a job, so they took whatever job they could, practicing and honing their skill on whatever project they were given. They toiled away until one fateful day, they finally got that dream job, designing a New York library. So they went to work, day and night. Blood, sweat, and tears went into making that final drawing and design absolutely perfect. Can you guess what happened? The finished product was beautiful. It won all sorts of artsy design awards and was eventually built. The finished product was even more beautiful than the design. Books lined the walls floor to ceiling and people came from far and wide to see this work of art. There was only one problem. Every year, the whole thing sunk a couple of inches into the ground. Eventually, that beautiful building and all of its books were condemned. The architect forgot to account for one crucial thing. The books. So no matter how much time, effort, or resources we pour into our investing research, it will never be perfect. The simple truth is we can't and won't think of everything. We just don't want to forget about the books. So as always, thank you for joining me on this journey, for your support and your feedback. It means the world to me. P.S. And of course, don't forget, you're just one investment away. Let's go find it.